Yeah, well, just like Shane said, my name is Corbin Munz. I'm the student pastor here, and usually when I'm getting up to preach, it's to a room full of junior high and high school students, and one of the really cool things that I get to do every single Wednesday when I get up to preach is say this. I get to say this to our students every week. It's, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you did last night or last week. This is a place where you can come and just be you. We don't want you to put on a face. We just want you to come as you are. And then after I get to say that, I get to say this. If you're here every week or if you feel like you belong here, you get to help make this a place where that's true for other people as well. Now, every week I say that because I want our students to know that this place, our student ministry, is a place where they can find family. Because for me, that's how I found family. I found my family and my friends and really people that brought me to where I am today from a student ministry. So I want our students to know that that place can be a family for them. And I'm really excited because I actually get to talk about that today. Throughout the rest of this message, I get to talk about how we can be part of a family just like that. But before I jump into that, I want to kind of recap the last couple weeks. In case you missed it, in case you just didn't hear what was said, I want us to know like where we've been in these last two weeks of year in the story so we know where we're going right now. And it's all kind of summarized in this first point right here. It says, we are part of God's new covenant, and we are called to be royal priests. We're part of God's new covenant, and we are called to be royal priests. So this idea of a new covenant is one that has been just going on for a long time. It started with this guy named Abraham. God went to Abraham, and he made him a promise. And he told him this right here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord has said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. So this is God's first promise to Abraham where he tells him, this is what's going to happen to you. And then later on, God kind of confirms this covenant and he creates a set of rules and restrictions for it in like the form of the Ten Commandments and different laws that he gives to Moses. And the idea of these commandments, the ideas of this, these rules that God gives to these people are really just to show them how far away from this perfect holy God we really are. And as you kind of watch these Jewish people try to live up to these rules and these expectations, they fall flat. I mean, same way we would have, but they fall flat and they don't meet these expectations. So that's where this new covenant comes in. God sees how people aren't meeting the requirements, so he decides to send his son Jesus into the world and save people, save people from the rules and the regulations. And now, living in this new covenant, We don't have to be bound to all those laws and rules anymore. We can just rely on the fact that Jesus came, he gave his life for all of our sins, all of us, and now we can live in this wonderful new covenant. And that leads us into this next part. We are called to be royal priests. This idea of priest basically is saying, or basically the role of a priest is somebody who stands in between that holy God and sinful people. A priest gets to go to the sinful people and say, hey, what are your fears? What are your worries? What are your struggles? Let me bring them to this holy God. And then they get to bring the joy and the peace and the love and the forgiveness from that holy God and bring them back to the sinful people. And that's the role of priests. That's what we, if we're bought into this new covenant, we get to do that. But then there's this other phrase, royal. And royal really is all about identity. And our identity as royal is rooted in the fact that we are part of God's family. And that's what we get to dive in today. We are part of God's family. But before we jump into that, let me just pray for this morning and get our hearts ready. 
God, thank you so much that we all just get to come here and just to sit at your feet. God, I pray that as we just walk through what it means to be a part of your family, we would, we would respond to it. God, that you would just move in our hearts and you would show us how we can become part of your family and you would show us what we do once we're a part of it. So we love you and I pray that you would just remove all distractions, you would move me out of the way and God, you would just speak direct to the hearts of your people. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen. So the first thing that we need to know about being part of God's family is this. God's family can be messy. Plain and simple, God's family can be messy. I mean, first thing I'm going to do is look at myself and realize, hey, I'm messy. I know that. I'm part of God's family. God's family is messy. But also, if you look around at your friends and your family and people that you know are part of God's family, they're not necessarily perfect either, and that's okay. But this idea of God's family being messy has been going on for generations, even all the way back to Abraham, like we were talking about earlier. I mean, Abraham's family was so messy. And it's because Abraham was a messy person. Basically, God came to him and he gave them this great promise that you're going to be a great nation and all peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. And Abraham and his wife's response to that basically was, uh, no. And they just kind of laughed at him. They said, hey, um, we're really old. I don't think we're going to have any kids right now. You're, you're crazy. And that's just the beginning of Abraham's mess. He kind of keeps going on. And eventually when God's promise has taken a long time to come to fruition, Abraham said, oh, I'm going to just take it in my own hands. And he goes and he takes his wife's servant, and he sleeps with her, and he has a kid with her, because he's trying to make his promise happen. And that's just the beginning of the mess. He keeps going. Abraham even tries to pass his wife off as his sister to kind of protect her. It's just weird guy. Great things happen through him. Amazing things happen, but really messy dude. But Abraham was only the first example of the messiness in his family. This messiness continues on and on through generation, all the way down to Jesus. And it shows us that not only Abraham's family was messy, but Jesus' family was messy too. So one of the first things that I would tell a new Christian to start reading, if, like, if somebody came to me and said, hey, I've never read the Bible before. I want to just figure out what it means. I want to dive into it. Where's the first place to start? Like a lot of other people, I'd say, hey, go to the Psalms, go to the Gospels. That just kind of gives you a picture of who Jesus is, of who God is. As much as I think that's true, and I, would, I still will say that to people. If you open up Matthew, which is the first gospel, if you open that up, the very first thing you see is not some profound statement, this is who God is. It's a long list of names. It's just like dozens of names that said this person was the father, this person was the father, this person was the father, this, and it just keeps going on and on and on and on. And at first when we look at it, it's just like, what on earth is this list? Why is there just this random list of names? But if you dive into it a little deeper and you look a little bit behind what it actually means, this list, two things. First, this list is the ancestral line of Jesus. This list proves that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the promised Messiah to this Jewish people. He is the person that's going to come in and save them. But not only does it show that Jesus is who he says he is, it also shows what I just said a second ago, that Jesus' family is extremely messy. Like, let's look at that first verse in Matthew one, two. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. We already talked about Abraham. We know Abraham's messy, covered that. But then it gets into some of his descendants. I want to highlight Jacob really quick. Jacob basically knew that his brother was going to inherit everything, so he clothed himself. He made himself look like he was his brother, and he stole his brother's inheritance. And then he had these kids, Judah and his brothers. 
um, they were also extremely messy. Instead of being God's chosen people, instead of being this great group of people, they tried to kill their brother, Joseph. And then when they had this like crisis of conscience, like, oh, we, we can't kill Joseph, that's not right. Instead of like bringing him back into their life and welcoming him with open arms, they just sold him into slavery instead. It was extremely messy, but it doesn't stop with them. It keeps going on. If we look in verse five, I believe, you've got Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And it's got these two women's names, which is not a really common thing to put in an ancestral line in Jewish history, but it highlights some pretty important things. Rahab, as much as she was a great person that saved God's people, she was also a prostitute. And there's no hiding that. Like, that was a true fact about who Rahab was. And then you've got Ruth, who wasn't even a Jewish person at all, yet she still was in this family line of Jesus. But then it really all comes to, like, a head when we get to this next verse and we see King David. Let me just read this. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. So the reason Bathsheba was the widow of Uriah is because David stole Bathsheba from Uriah and then killed Uriah to cover it up, which is crazy. And then if you keep looking through that list, there is just name after name of people that were extremely messy. And I think we can look at this list and say, wow, that's a really cool fact. Thanks, Corbin. Or we can look at it in a little bit of a different way. The fact that Jesus' family was messy shouldn't be just a cool fact for us to know or just some fun bit of information. It should be incredibly encouraging for us because it shows us that God can use incredibly messed up people and incredibly messed up families to do amazing things, which is great because our families are messy too. It's so encouraging that God can do incredible things through messy people because our families are messy too. I know my family is messy. I love my family. My family is great. I care about my family so much, but that doesn't mean that they're perfect. That doesn't mean that there's not mess in my family. I mean, here's the deal. We live in a world with so many broken homes. We live in a world with so many broken homes. I mean, I come from one, or come from the quote-unquote broken home. My parents were divorced when I was really young. I've got six different siblings, and all of them are half-siblings. It's all over the place. It's, it's crazy. It's messy. But that's kind of the world we live in. And I don't have an exact statistic for you because there's not a lot of people that agree with this, that agree on it. But the general consensus is that over 50% of American families now are the quote-unquote broken home. But I have a problem with that word, that phrase. I look at it and I hear this idea of broken homes, and it kind of bothers me. So let me say this. Divorce and families being ripped apart is not part of God's plan. It's not what was created to happen. This is not part of what God wanted for the world. But at the same time, God can still use these broken families and these messy families to do incredible things for his kingdom. And not only that, but just because a family isn't quote-unquote a broken home does not mean that it's not messy. Some, I guess, fixed homes that aren't broken are just as messy, if not more messy, than broken homes that are filled with divorce and filled with different things. So I don't know what kind of family you come from. I don't know what kind of family you're in right now. But what I do know is that 
even though God's family is full of messy people, it is the best family that we could ever be a part of. And we get to be a part of that family no matter how messy of a family we come from. We get to be a part of God's family no matter how messy of a person we are. We can be a part of God's family. And that is so encouraging to me, and I hope it is to you too. But this is what God's family members do. That's what we're going to spend the rest of the day looking at, is what God's family members actually do, what it actually looks like to live as a part of God's family. And the first thing is this. Family members, your God's family members, contribute. You know, last week, John talked about this idea of being royal priests, and let me just read this verse that he read. It's 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It says, you are royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. He called us out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. In other words, he called us out of the mess into something bigger and into something greater. Or another way that John kind of phrased it last week, we're called to get in the game, not just sit in the stands. And, you know, for some of us, that might look like just jumping in and serving in a certain ministry. That might look like going and serving at a local missions organization. That might look like going on a missions trip. Getting in the game looks so different in so many different ways. But what I want us to really know is that we're called to contribute. We're called to get in the game even when we don't want to. I think so often we get in the game, we contribute when we feel like it's necessary, but not always when we don't want to. And when I think about this, I think about me when I was growing up. I had to do chores, just like many of you had to do, and just like many of you make your kids do. It's a great thing. It's a good thing. Um, I hated them so much. So I had a bunch of younger siblings, and it felt like I always had a sibling in the house that was being bottle-fed. And if you've never washed bottles, it is the worst thing ever. Just... It is. There is. You can't argue that with me. If you do, you're wrong. Like, cleaning bottles is horrible. There's so many different pieces, and every time I'm cleaning these bottles, I'm like, why do I have to do this? I didn't make this mess. Um, first off, never say that to a mom, ever. Um, her response always to me when I said that, besides getting in trouble, was, in this family, we contribute. In this family, we pitch in. And that's what we get to do as part of God's family. Even when we didn't make the mess, even when we didn't cause the problem, even when we're not the person that made the thing happen, we get to contribute anyways. So God's family could look, or contributing to God's family could look like serving in a church. It could look like serving in a local missions organization. Or it could just be being there for people in the family. And that kind of leads us into this next point, that God's family members stand up for others. God's family members don't just stand idly by and see poverty and see injustice and see these things. They stand up for it, and they do something about it. 1 John 3.17 says, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, Let's not merely say that we love each other, but to show the truth by our actions. That's what we're called to do. 
We're called to look and to see poverty, to see different things and stand up and help and stand up and fix. That's what God has empowered us to do. But more than going in and fixing situations, we're called to love and to care about people. And I get that wrong sometimes. And there was one time I got that really wrong. It was my junior year of high school. I was living in France as a foreign exchange student. And I was just walking down the road of the city I was living in, Lyon. And I saw this homeless man on the side of the road or on the side of the street. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do a good deed. Oh, I'm going to go help him because that's what I'm supposed to do. And I was kind of thinking about myself, like, oh, let me just go mark this good deed off my list. So I went and I bought the guy a sandwich and I brought it over to him and I handed him the sandwich and I said, hey, here's your sandwich. And he looked at me and he was so grateful and he thanked me for giving it to him. thanked me for giving it to him. And then he looked at me and he said, I really appreciate this, but you're the sixth person that's given me a sandwich today and I'm not going to be able to eat it. It's going to go bad. And I was just like dumbfounded because in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm helping you. You're supposed to accept it. Just take my help. I'm, I'm not looking for anything more. I just want you to take my help and that's it. I didn't care about the person. I cared about the fact that I was doing a good deed. But then the guy said, hey, sit down. And I ended up sitting with this guy for about an hour and a half. He just told me his story. He told me how he ended up where he was. He told me how he'd been trying to get a job and he just couldn't find one. And he told me all about who he was. And through that conversation, I began to actually care about him as a person and not just as a situation to fix. And that's what we're called to do. We're not called to just write the check to that organization down the street. We're not just called to go serve food at a homeless kitchen every now and then. We're called to care about people. We're called to love people. We are called to love people for who they are no matter how different they are than us. Because here's the thing. That's what Jesus did. If we look at John 15, verse 12, see this, this is my commandment. This is Jesus talking. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So he says, love each other in the same way I've loved you. And then he kind of tells them, this is how I loved you. I, laid, I will lay down my life for you. So that's what we get to be a part of. And what's really cool about the way Jesus loved people is that not only did he give his life for everybody, not only did he lay everything down for everybody, but he did it no matter who they were. Jesus loved without reservation, without regard to their racial standing, their political standing, their social standing, without regard to who they were at all. Jesus loved them and Jesus cared for them because that's what Jesus knew was supposed to happen. And now we get to do the same thing. And I hope that's encouraging for you. We don't have to be like the world. We don't have to love people based on how much they agree with us. We don't have to love people based on how much they look like us or talk like us or sound like us. We get to love people without reservation, and that should be freeing. It should be encouraging, and that should be exciting. Because no matter how different people are than us, no matter where they come from, no matter what they've done, they have just as much potential to be a part of the family of God as we do. So we should love them just like Jesus did. And with that, all of that being true, we get to move into this last idea of what God's family does. It's this God's family members want his family to grow. 
God's family members aren't content with looking around and saying, wow, everything looks like me, everything is the same as me, and this is comfortable, and I want it to stay like this. God's family doesn't look around and say, you know what, I think my church is big enough. You know what, I think we've reached our community enough, and now I'm going to stay where I am. No, God's family gets to look out, and we get to say, oh, there's more people that need to hear about him. There's more people that get to be a part of this. And we get to reach out, and we get to bring them in. Because at one point, we were brought in, too. We weren't part of God's original chosen people. We aren't, I mean, some of you might be Jewish. I'm not. I was not part of God's original chosen people. But now, I've gotten this opportunity to become a part of that family. Romans eleven seventeen says this, And you Gentiles, us, who are branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch and not the root. So the first time I read this phrase, I kind of figured out what grafting meant just by context clues, but um, had no idea what it actually was. So for those of you who don't know what grafting is, it's like a farming term. And basically, it's you take a branch from a tree that's not part of a tree. You take a branch from a tree, and you literally insert it into another tree, and you use this grafting paste, and it becomes part of that tree. That branch was at one point not part of the tree, and then you bring it in, and it becomes completely a part of that tree as much as any other branch. It's getting from the same roots as everybody, every other branch on that tree, and it is now 100% that tree. That is the same thing that has happened to us. When we choose to become part of God's family, we are acknowledging that we, at one point, were not part of it, but now we are able to be grafted in and be completely part of his family as much as anybody else. And man, I hope that's encouraging. I hope that is so exciting for you. But at the same time, I want us to make sure we don't ignore the rest of that verse. It says, but you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You're just a branch, not the root. This verse is a quick reminder that we weren't originally part of God's family. But then we were able to come into it. So it should be a reminder to us that there are people right now that are not part of God's family. There are people all over the world, there are people all over our community that are not, that are not part of God's family, and they can come in and be part of it. You know, when Jesus was with his disciples, he shared, like right before he left them, he shared this, this idea. It says, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is Jesus encouraging his disciples, saying, I'm going to be with you, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out, and I want you to grow this family. I want you to grow out, and I want you to bring more people into what we are doing. And I don't know about you, but that makes me so happy, because we get to bring more people into this amazing experience that we have. But now I think it's a good time for us to look at this and to ask ourselves, how am I doing? I mean, I'm asking myself the same thing. How am I doing? 
Am I doing everything that God's calling me to do or not? And I want you to ask yourself the same question. I'm not going to tell you yes or no. Nobody can. But you can ask yourself that same question. How am I doing? But maybe you're in the room right now and you're saying, hey, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not part of God's family. I've never made that kind of decision. I've never wanted to be a part of that. I want you all to ask yourself this, though. Am I a part of God's family? And for those of you that answer no, I want to say this. Every week, every day, God's invitation to you to become part of the family is open. Every week, every day, you have the opportunity to come into this great family that is doing great things all over the world. So please, if that's you, and you answered no to this, and you want to say yes, do it. Don't leave this room. Don't sign off the stream until you tell somebody that you want to be part of God's family, and you let them help you and show you what it really means to become part of his family. Now, for some of us, or for a lot of us in this room, we already are part of God's family. So now I want us to ask ourselves these simple questions. Do I contribute? Do I stand up for others? And am I inclusive? Am I wanting to make God's family grow? Or am I just comfortable with how it is? Only you can answer that question for yourself. God, thank you that you are doing incredible things in the hearts of your people. God, thank you that you are bringing people into your incredible family. And God, I pray that as we ask ourselves these questions, that you would show us whether they're true or not. And if they aren't true, God, I pray that you would show us how we can contribute. God, I pray that you would show us how we can stand up for others. And I pray that you would show us how we can grow your family. Lord, we know that only you can accomplish all these things. So God, we pray and we beg that you would just move in this space and you would move in the hearts of all your people. So Lord, we love you and we just lift all of these things up to you knowing that you will accomplish them. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much.